0: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we're almost back, man. I feel like pretty soon, there's going to be a point in the near future where I'm going to actually see your face when we do this, (laughs) like in person.
1: April 15th, uh, vaccines open for all here.
0: Yes. uh, And I saw Gavin was saying like June 15th, they might try to move to all open everything in California. So that is hopeful news since we've been pretty, um, you know, we've been very cautious here, I'd say. You have. In some
1: I, ways. I admire your restraint.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean Californians, but yes. Yeah. Thank you. I too have been very uh, cautious. In I think life.
1: I've seen you once in the whole pandemic, right? The day that uh they declared Biden the winner.
0: Yeah, I didn't give a fuck about anything that yeah, day. That we day was, yeah, yeah, that day is
1: yeah, yeah. Just
0: was, popping bottles and running around town. I think that was it though. Yeah, I think that was it too. That's very sad. Uh well, I don't know. Not sad is how great a show we have for all you people today. So (laughs) there are... (laughs) Good transition. There are... Reports of a coup attempt at Jordan. So we're going to take into what we know about that. Uh, I just did a roundup of good news about the fight against COVID because I need to hear some of it sometimes. There's some Iran deal progress. There's calls to boycott the Winter Olympics in China. Some updates on Netanyahu's corruption cases, plural, because there are many of them. Uh, A story about a modeling shoot gone wrong. And then some headlines out of Russia, Ethiopia, and Myanmar. Uh, And then I'm going to talk with... Pulitzer Prize-winning author Joby Warwick about his new book, Redline, which talks not just about Obama's debate over whether to strike Syria, but the just incredible mission to ultimately get 1,300 tons of chemical weapons out of Syria in the middle of a uh, civil war and then destroy them safely, which is, it's a remarkable story. I wonder how much of this you kind of like – were getting briefed on at the time, Ben, or if this is one of those like far-flung military operations that just kind of happens in the background? Like, do you remember?
1: Yeah, I was I, I was a source for Joby's book. Um, oh yeah, you're and quoted. I, I think I'm quoted in there. Um, and but you you know you're right. You you don't. So what happens in government that's kind of interesting, and this is why the book would be so interesting to read. Is it like you make some agreement, right? You know. The with the US and Russia and the UN Security Council and the OPCW, the organization that deals with chemical weapons, to like find and destroy like thousands of tons of chemical weapons. And then, then, then a bunch of people just go work on that. Um, let's go do it. And, and you get reports like I remember getting reports like in the PDB about like how many chemical weapons have been destroyed. And but you don't, you can't visualize that. Like, I remember sitting there thinking, like, what does that even look like to like. Move these chemical weapons and destroy them and dispense of them amidst a raging civil war with a government that had denied that they even had chemical weapons until you know the moment the deal was struck. So, you know, a reminder that you know international organizations and experts uh matter (laughs) because uh, uh, you know, that was no easy task. And and look, as 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 bad as the Syrian civil war was, there were much like potentially worse outcomes, right? If ISIS got its hands on tons and tons of chemical weapons, can you imagine, you know, so.
0: Yeah, oh my um, God. Yeah. And it got real close and we're going to talk about that in an interview. But yeah, I mean, the book spends a lot of time with like UN teams and then these guys in sort of like the bowels of the Pentagon who literally built a machine to specially designed to destroy these weapons and then had to do it at sea on a ship. It's like a pretty harrowing, harrowing story. So stick around for that. Um, Before we get to the news, uh, don't miss Hysteria this week because Aaron Ryan and Alyssa Mastromonaco talk about the fight for voting rights in Georgia. And then they are joined by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So that's a big uh, big scoop. I know. I know. I, I got the uh, the housekeeping heads up from Michael, and I was like, that's a big deal. Uh, and then make sure you're subscribed to Rubicon. It's a great podcast from Brian Boitler, where he is breaking down some of the most consequential decisions of Biden's first 100 days. It's been a really helpful deep dive for me to understand things that are you know not necessarily like front page headlines every day, but critical issues that that team is working through. So subscribe wherever you get your pods. Uh, ben, you want to start at this Jordanian coup? Because I yeah. think these headlines caught all of our eyes over the weekends. Um So the Jordanian government says it has foiled a coup attempt against the current monarch, King Abdullah II. This coup attempt allegedly involved uh, the king's half-brother, former crown prince Hamza bin Hussein, and a handful of other members of the royal family and advisors to the king. Uh, Prince Hamza managed to release a video from house arrest, even though he said his internet had been cut off where he said he had been detained simply for attending meetings where the king and the current government had been criticized for corruption, incompetence, et cetera. Interestingly, in the video, he then went and criticized the government for corruption, crushing dissent, nepotism, misrule. So he's, he's leaning into this one. The Jordanian government says that the Crown Prince was conspiring with foreign entities to destabilize the country specifically with an Israeli businessman who might have ties to the Mossad. I I don't know what the truth is. I do agree with the crown prince who pointed out that every government always uh, routinely accuses people they lock up of conspiring with foreign entities. So we don't know here. Um, Jordan has been hit hard by the COVID pandemic. Uh, Deaths are spiking. Poverty levels are spiking. The State Department has expressed U.S. support for King Abdullah uh, in the government, the current monarch, uh, as of other countries in the region. Ben, what did you make of these reports? And, and how worried do you think we should be about, you know, political instability in Jordan, a close US ally that has remained remarkably stable uh, throughout the Arab Spring in like a pretty brutal decade or so?
1: Well, I I think first of all, we should be a little careful in, in calling it a coup attempt in the sense that um, that's what the Jordanian government says, but there there wasn't For a sure. lot of evidence that there was a coup. Um, you no, had some very senior people arrested, like former ministers and and obviously the uh, you know former crown prince Hamza uh, put under house arrest of sorts. But there was no in- indication that the military was involved. No indication that there was like a plot. If there was, they didn't produce any evidence. What it seems like is that Prince Hamza has been critical of the government um, has. Engaged with uh, parts of the government's power base, uh, you know, tribes along the East Bank um, uh, that have formed kind of part of the the monarchy's base of support in Jordan. And look, here's the you know the awkward truth for people in the U.S. and the West who who like King Abdullah because he he's very comfortable in bilateral meetings with uh, Western leaders and in you know the salons of Europe and the United States. Jordan Mm -hmm. has a lot of problems with corruption, with long-term unemployment, with mismanagement. Uh, They cycle through prime ministers every year or two. Um, And so while there's been this kind of appearance of stability, and certainly stability in their foreign relations and their upholding of the peace treaty with Israel um, and their cooperation with the United States on counterterrorism issues, in in hosting an enormous amount of refugees, particularly from Syria— you know there's frustrations and what this felt like to me is you know king abdullah and his government kind of cracking down on a potentially popular rival um who frankly is probably a bit closer to jordanian public opinion than the king himself um and so to me it's a you know it's a it's a warning sign not necessarily of a imminent coup um but perhaps of a, a sense by king abdullah and those around him that that you know his rule, his his you know, over two decade rule um, faces more dissatisfaction than we might be seeing from the outside.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we should also point out that Hamza was stripped of his status and his privileges as crown prince in 2004 by King Abdullah who then tapped his own son for the for the job. Uh, Queen Noor I believe was tweeting that this was slander and and you know called on her son Hamza to be uh, to be cleared of all these charges. So it seems like we are just at the beginning of this thing.
1: Yeah, and again, you know, like you point out this bears watching because you know we haven't seen this level of infighting and rivalry in the Jordanian monarchy in in a long time, um, and you know, it, it just it's a reminder that that all of these arrangements, these kind of autocratic arrangements in the Middle East, are a bit tenuous. Um, whether it's a guy like Sisi in Egypt, or whether it's the the royal families in uh, the Gulf countries, or or even King Abdullah, you um, reminded me of an interesting story, Tommy, which was uh, in the U.S. statement. Uh, reminded me of this. After Obama had called for Mubarak to step down, and after Mubarak mm-hmm. himself stepped down, uh, Obama, you know, I was kind of saying like, you know, what a great thing, and you know, I'm glad that you took this this step. And he said he was potentially helped by the fact that he didn't have a longstanding relationship with Mubarak, in the same way that, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and the Bushes had this long relationship with Mubarak. And he said to me, you know, I wonder. If it was King abdullah who who I like and who's kind of my generation and we get along, uh, you know, w- there's such affinity for him as just a person, you know, and he he was an ancient guy. he'd come to the u s and he'd he'd ride his motorcycle up you know the California coast and all this stuff and uh, and yet, like you know if you look under the rock of you know governance in Jordan, um they're highly dependent on foreign assistance. They don't have the resources, the oil and gas that. The, the Gulf countries have. And yeah, there's a lot of corruption and a lot of reason mm-hmm. for Jordanians to want more from their government. So I hope that King Abdullah's response, the American government's response as, as a huge provider of that foreign assistance um, is not to kind of crack down on dissent, but rather try to figure out a way to be more responsive to what is bothering people in Jordan in the first place. Um, you know, just locking yeah. up your half brother is not the answer here.
0: No that's a very uh, Saudi move. If we're yeah definitely yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. I, I, I yeah I remember being in a lot of those situation room meetings with you during the uh, during the sort of Egypt crisis before Mubarak's uh, you know, step down. And there were lots of 60 and 70 year old generals being like, look, Hosni and the boys were with us. In, yeah, in they were the with us in and the and Gulf War and, one, and, and yeah, you know, stuff. Yeah, yeah, lot of A lot of familiarity bias there. Um, well, we'll keep an eye on this one. Obviously, COVID is the backdrop for a lot of these, you know, sort of escalating situations of discontent in places like Jordan. Uh, that being said, I did want to round up some COVID good news because it has been such a dark, dark year. So uh, light at the end of the tunnel is the point. So the first piece of COVID good news I saw is that President Biden just announced that uh, a woman named Gail Smith will be his coordinator for the global COVID-19 response. Ben and I both worked very closely with Gail on the NSC in the Obama years. Obama later tapped her to run USAID. Gail is a global development expert. She helped uh, spearhead the Ebola response in 2014 and is just like a dogged worker who gets shit done and it may be very excited. uh, Two- There's reports about a new COVID-19 vaccine entering clinical trials that is expected to be even more effective than the current options. And it's designed in a way that can be mass produced in chicken eggs like flu vaccines, which would potentially allow less technologically advanced factories around the world to create billions of doses per year. So that's exactly the kind of like surge of vaccines we need. It's going to take a while for these Trials to conclude, but scientists were optimistic. Uh, lastly, Ben, you know, like the Biden's team rollout of, of vaccinations is really cooking. Yeah. We saw a couple of days in a row of over four million shots delivered per day. So, you know, all this is to say the pandemic is far from over. Global vaccination rates are nowhere close to where they need to be. There's massive inequality. But I was glad to see Gail get this job. I was glad glad to see you know scientific pathways to increase availability. So a lot of good news out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right to highlight it. I'll just talk about Gail for a second. I mean, first of all, you know, we've talked recently about you know diversity of experience and kind of personality types in government, and and Gail Smith definitely fits the bill. I love Gail Smith. And totally. She, she, you know, she was in the Obama White House for uh, the first term and part of the second term, and then ran USAID. And as you said, notably, uh, spearheaded like a lot of the Ebola response. But also just a fascinating life story. Um, Gail was a journalist. She was in Ethiopia, kind of embedded in some of the you know conflicts there, covering them. Then became a development expert. Um, then founded the Enough Project to you know really that was rooted in the the Darfur movement. So she's been an activist, a journalist, and a practitioner of foreign assistance. She's run the One Campaign for the last few years, so deeply familiar with Africa. And, and what I take away from this is like they're serious about. You know, globalizing the fight against COVID, as we've talked about and urged on this podcast. And when I think about Samantha Power and Gail Smith, kind of tag teaming this, it makes me, you know, excited about government in a way that that I don't normally get excited because they're both like dogged, persistent, insistent on outcomes that benefit all peoples on equity. Um, so I'm I'm really excited. You know, once Samantha gets confirmed, Gail gets in that role. Uh, I think this is a great signal that you're, you're going to have people that are really going to prioritize this. It's not going to be a secondary concern uh, to to vaccinate and, and stamp out COVID, not just in the US and Europe, but in, in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and around the world, I think this is a great, great, great signal. Um,
0: yeah, we'd be in these uh, uh, Sudan related uh, meetings with Gail and we'd be talking about some like rebel leader. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, I spent she knew a couple that. weeks yeah, out like yeah, yeah. in yeah. the bush with that guy. She like, was what the, the fuck are you
1: talking about? She was in the bush with all these people. I remember when we went to Ethiopia, she knew Ethiopia better than anybody I, I've met. I mean, she lived there for years. And we went to Ethiopia with Obama and She was telling him how he had to go out, like, you know, he's like, What are you doing in Ethiopia? And she's like, I I I've already made arrangements. We 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 have to go to this one jazz club in Addis. And she went on about how great this jazz club was and and how they have like an after hours thing. And Obama's like, Gail. Like I'm the, the president of the United States. Like, like <laughs> I can't I, do I, that, I can dude. go back to Ethiopia with you someday, hopefully, and go to this jazz club. But but anyway, that's a side note. That Gail's like been out in the world. She hasn't just been living. She in lived things. She's tanks not reading reports. Yeah, she yeah. hasn't just been like educating herself off of other people's think tanks reports that she then writes another report. Like and that that experience will be helpful just in the way Samantha has. Samantha was a stringer, a journalist, you know, a writer before she was in foreign policy. I just think it's great to have people of that kind of background, and the Biden team needed that. You know, they have a, like you know they have a very DC-oriented team. Um, not that Gail hasn't spent plenty of time in DC. Some both, yeah, yeah. Mm. But uh, but this is good.
0: No, it's it's definitely good. Uh, some more good news out of the uh, sort of Iran deal talks. Well, hopefully it's good news. We'll see what you think. So officials from the U.S. and Iran are, I think, as we record, Ben uh, hanging out in Vienna to discuss the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, they're kind of hanging out. So the US and Iran aren't directly no- negotiating. Instead, there are what are called indirect talks, where European diplomats are intermediaries. They are shuttling messages from, I assume, one hotel suite to another, the way you'd, I don't know, have your friend pass a note to a girl you liked in middle school. I'm kind of kidding, but it does seem, it's a touch childish. Uh, yeah. Ben, the clock is ticking here, right? Because the Iranians have a, an election in June. Do you think indirect talks are a sign of progress that Biden might be able to break this impasse with Iran where each side is demanding that the other offer concessions first before they'll reenter the deal? Like, well, how did you read this?
1: I, I read this as a positive step. And, and okay. you know, I've been frustrated. Um, no secret about that. Uh, in part, because I just think there was like time lost. Um, I, You know, uh, you come in you, on a campaign promise of reentering the JCPOA, just why not just reenter the JCPOA? And I also thought that the U.S., Having pulled out of the deal could go first. Um, but this feels like a real effort to initiate a process to get back into the JCPOA, uh, the Iran deal. Now, as you say, there's a clock ticking here because there's an Iranian election coming up. And so there's a pretty tight window here for the US and Iran to just get to brass tacks and get back into the deal. And if people, you know, so what does that mean? It, The U.S. needs to do a whole bunch of things in terms of restoring sanctions relief owed to Iran under the agreement, and the Iranians need to return to all the restrictions that they were under under the JCPOA. And there's this question of who goes first and how how do you sequence it, which can sound complicated, but it's been done before. So when the Iran deal was reached uh, in the summer of 2015, um, there was a formulation Constructed called implementation day, which is essentially you pick a date on the calendar and you say on that date, both sides will be in full compliance with this deal. The US will be in full compliance with the sanctions relief and the Iranians will be in full compliance with their nuclear steps. And and there was a sequencing that led up to that. But the point is that it's been done before. They've negotiated a process where you set a date on the calendar and then a whole bunch of experts just figure out how you get from, from A to Z. Um, so they can do this. I think the sticking point, just so people know, on the U.S. side is that Trump people, in part to sabotage an effort to come back into the JCPOA, stacked on a whole bunch of additional sanctions, many of which are duplicative of the nuclear sanctions. So, for instance... Iran is owed sanctions relief under the JCPOA, um, and the, the the Trump team kind of double sanctioned them for some things. So they, they the same things that they sanctioned the Iranians for for their nuclear program, they sanctioned them for terrorism-related purposes too. Um, and the Iranians will claim, I think with good reason, wait a second, you, you can't cr- create a different rationale to impose the same sanctions on us that we're supposed to be lifted under the nuclear deal, right? And so the Biden team is gonna to have to face criticism from right wingers in the US that um you're 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 lifting additional sanctions beyond what the nuclear sanctions are. This sounds very complicated, but the simple answer as as a bunch of people have been pointing out recently is the Trump team didn't even hide the fact that they were putting uh, these sanctions on to foil an attempt to go back in the nuclear era. In fact, a lot of the people that support a hawkish line on Iran said that publicly. Um, and so the bottom line is that the Biden team needs to get back to the status quo ante of the JCPOA, which, by the way, still leaves in place a whole bunch of U.S. sanctions for other things. But you have to get to the place where the Iranians are getting their sanctions relief and they're... And the U.S. and world powers are getting all of those restrictions under the Iran deal that the Iranians have been violating in recent months and years.
0: Let's hope they get there Um, because, you know, you're certainly seeing some of the usual suspects in D.C. line up against this thing. I don't know if you saw this. There's a really creepy group for listeners called uh, FDD, uh, which is just this like Gulf funded, like right wing anti-Iran group. One of the heads of it, this creep named Mark Dubowitz, tweeted on Easter, uh, (laughs) on this day, Easter and the end of Passover. We're blessed to be alive and witness the warm ties that have developed uh, with the Abraham Accords, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm cutting it. And then at the end, he says the end of the Islamic Republic in Iran would complete this. So he used his yeah. Easter tweet, which I did not read all of it's fine uh, to call for the regime change in Iran, which I think, you know, tells you a lot, tells you all you need to know about a lot of the critics of this deal, frankly.
1: Yeah. I don't know about you, Tommy, but on religious holidays that are meant to signal uh, resilience, redemption, in some cases, you know, forgiveness. I usually like to call for the end of, of certain governments um, that mm-hmm. bother me. Uh, Look, FDD people should. You know what? What I've never understood is why, like this guy, like Mark Dubovitz, who could not have more of an agenda, right? uh, Of regime change in Iran, not been shy or subtle about that, runs an organization called the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy that regularly flacks for authoritarian governments, right? Which has Mm -hmm. kind of always been an interesting irony. Why, like you know, autocratic governments in the Gulf are funding. A foundation for the defense of democracies. Maybe their goal is not to defend democracies. Um, Seems off, yeah. But, but is kind of turned to as like an impartial analyst, you know, uh, like, uh, all, the like all, all the time. All the time. Like every article, they just start to notice like every New York Times article about Iran, like this guy is quoted in it. In a way, by the way, in which they would never quote like some bomb-throwing leftist, you know? Um, yeah,
0: like Code Pink of, or something. No, not a yeah, chance. It, no,
1: it'd be the analogy, like, of having a Code Pink quote in every story about Iran, right? right? Um, so take it with a grain of salt. And yeah, like, um, uh, I, I don't know about you, Tommy, but I, I didn't pass my Easter and Passover holidays uh, like wishing the end of, of of governments. But, you know, it's another story.
0: Yeah, no, my family starts every Christmas with a, a quiet <laughs> prayer calling for the death of Kim Jong-un. So, yeah, no, maybe, yeah. maybe Mark and I <laughs> would get along. Let's talk about the Olympics, Ben, because you flagged the story. This is incredibly interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, so world leaders are under increasing pressure to boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics, which are in China. The reason is an issue we've talked about a lot on the show, which is the ongoing detention of more than a million Uyghurs in you know, re-education or forced labor camps in Northwest China, which has been called a genocide by the US. Uh, so the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee would ultimately decide whether or not the United States boycotts the Olympics, but Uh, Human rights groups in some but not all Republicans in Congress are pushing Biden to weigh in or to pressure uh, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, to try to change the venue. The White House recently uh, seemed to show some flexibility on this and say there's no decision made, which means maybe they're considering it. Republicans are contrasting the potential Olympics boycott with Biden's comments about Major League Baseball, moving the All-Star Game out of Georgia to protest its voter suppression law. So China was awarded the 2022 Games. Uh, well before you know the the genocide against the Uyghurs began, but obviously the treatment of the Uyghurs isn't the only human rights issue uh, when it comes to China. There's Hong Kong, there's Tibet, there's much more. So the U.S. a little history here: the U.S. boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, human rights groups are also targeting corporate sponsors of the Olympics to put pressure on them, like Airbnb, Coca-Cola, Visa. You know, Ben, when I think back to the 2008 Olympics, you and I have talked about this before, which were also in China. They were a huge propaganda win uh, for the Chinese government because that opening ceremony was incredible. What do you think about these calls to boycott the the 2022 Games? I mean, I, I think when you look at the 1980 boycott by the U.S. and other Western countries over the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and then the fact that the Russians or Soviets remained in Afghanistan Another nine years, yeah, uh, and then we later invaded. By the way, I, I don't think anyone would call that a success. But like, uh, how do you judge success here? What are the things you'd be thinking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I felt like this because this is going to be an issue that we're living with for one way or another for the next year, a year until the Olympics. Um, yeah, for sure. And like on the one hand, I, I saw the IOC, uh, the International Olympic Committee, saying, you know, well, sports isn't political, and you know, this is different. But the, the problem with that is that there's no question that the Chinese use things like this for political purposes. Um, I mean, the 2008 thing was a massive flux on the world stage. Um, and, and given Xi Jinping's, well, you know, very assertive nature, um, you mm-hmm. can bet that there'll be like military parades and shows of Chinese ascendance. Totally. It's going to have a political purpose to it. And so that makes all these debates valid. I think that on the one hand, a boycott by the US, I tend to come down on like, what does that accomplish? It ends up kind of hurting the athletes. You know, I, I remember even as a kid, like, you know, he, learning about these athletes in the 84 Olympics who didn't get to compete in 1980, who didn't get to compete against their best competition in 84 in some areas where the Russians and Soviets in the Eastern Bloc didn't participate. And so that that's a, It's worth consideration, and it should be debated because of the Uyghurs, because of Hong Kong, because of the need to just try to this kind of steamrolling uh, descent of of China's human rights record. Um, I mean, it's even far worse than it was in 2008. It it demands attention. I, I do think that for the time being, the targeting of the corporate sponsorship is very interesting to me. Because one mm-hmm. of the things that we've noticed, right, is that, like, a lot of these big corporations, a lot of U.S. venture capital, you know, totally looks the other way on these human rights issues. I mean, some of them are literally invested in Xinjiang province. They say nothing about what's happening in Hong Kong. There's a kind of duck and cover, you know, Hollywood studios making movies that, that they censor, you know, to, to, to appeal to Chinese audiences. The, the, the idea in In the same way, by the way, that there should be discomfort for American companies, around things like the Georgia law. Like there should mm-hmm. be some discomfort around your investments in China and your sponsorship of things in China. you know this 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 has to become a part of the conversation if China's human rights practices are going to continue to go in this direction. So I think for the time being, That's a very healthy way to channel this um, in terms of like just spotlighting this, making this uncomfortable for the Chinese. Like there's going to be a lot more attention on your human rights record this time around than in 2008 when they largely got a pass. There's going to be a lot more pressure on sponsors. I do think it's pretty extreme and you might just end up punishing athletes uh, to pull the plug on the Olympics altogether. That's my current take, Um, uh, but we should all watch how this evolves. And I'm very curious what, what you and other people think about this.
0: It's really hard, man. I mean, look, the, the IOC banned South Africa from Olympic competition from 64 to 88 because of apartheid. If the IOC could do that to China until they stop a cultural genocide, that would make a lot of sense to me. I, I kind of agree with you, though, that like these athletes who have been training their entire lives for this moment, they had no role in selecting where the games would be played. They've just done the work. And also, you know, if we boycott it doesn't mean that the Olympic Games won't happen. We'd obviously try to get our allies to boycott as well. Um, But, you know, look, they would probably be be televised to the majority of the world, right? I mean, I I don't know. So these things tend to be factionalized, right? The, The 1980 boycott was 65 Western countries boycotted, 80 participated. So it sort of split the world. All that said, you know, I don't know if you read it yet, but the New Yorker just had a huge piece yeah. out this week on that. Xinjiang. Yeah. Oh, my God. They follow this woman who was uh, held in in camps for, you know, I think a year and eight months. And, look, frankly, her story isn't the worst thing that we've read about, right? There are horrific stories of of systemic rape, forced sterilizations, like some of the worst things you could ever imagine. But the, the like, Kafka-esque nightmare that she was put through where... You don't know why you're detained. You can't get off these lists. You're 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 the suspicion that you're under once you're detained uh, puts everyone you know at risk. You're isolated. I mean, it's like it is truly harrowing, truly evil. Sixteen thousand mosques have been destroyed. Um, you know, these Uyghur family. Like, first of all, Xinjiang province is the size of Alaska, right? The, yeah. the border spans eight countries. So It's a massive place with yeah. tons of people, and the the pervasive surveillance of these. People, it's unlike anything you know the world has ever seen before. So it, it's it's horrific. It's horrific.
1: Well, and, and yeah, and and the other concern, right, is that it, it, Xinjiang could be a, a kind of a laboratory for yes, m- you know that kind of surveillance state. Maybe not to the extremity of camps, but but the similar tactics of like total surveillance of a population to Hong Kong, to other parts of China, to to exporting those technologies to other places. I, I think the other thing it's worth just you know coming back to and thinking about it over time is is international sports generally mm-hmm. uh, my interaction with the in government was like there's a lot of corruption there right um I, I remember you know this may sound like sour grapes but when when chicago had an olympic bid in 2009 and was bounced in like the first round th- it was mm-hmm. not even subtle it was like openly discussed not just by us uh, officials but by everybody that like the Olympic bids were fundamentally corrupted, you know? Um, bags of cash. And, and by the way, so like fast forward to the Sochi Olympics, Russia hosted a Winter Olympic Games in a summer resort town, right? Um, not the kind of place that you would pick like on the normal merits, right? It, which no. suggested that Putin had greased the the wheels a little bit in the same way that he got the World Cup. And by the way, then the Sochi Olympics, famously, there were billions of dollars of contracts to build stadiums and roads that just went to Putin's cronies. That whole games was under a cloud of corruption. Then there was a huge doping scandal with Russian athletes cheating. That whole thing was gross, right? From the the selection. It's not an anti-Russian comment because I love Russians and I love Russia's role in sports, but like this was not that. This was like Vladimir Putin's personal Olympics, right? And, And then
0: they invaded Ukraine.
1: And then they invaded Ukraine like the week after, right? And but if you look at the World Cup in 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 Russia and Qatar and the Beijing getting the Olympics twice in like less than 20 years, like th- this is not like on the level here. And yeah. Like let's just kind of get if, if if the IOC wants to say like let's get sports out of politics, well like maybe like, you know, pick some places that are a little less fraught you know like i have such good memories of like the Seoul games or the the sydney games or or the world cup in in africa how awesome was that in south africa mm-hmm. you know like it doesn't have to be in america and i guess la has you know an olympics in what 2028 uh, yep. but but I, I do think international sports particularly uh, the olympics and the world cup and you know needs to If they want to be apolitical, then be apolitical. Um, Don't try to have it both ways, where you're like taking the envelope of cash under the table and then saying you're above politics.
0: Yeah, I also think the Chinese beat out like a couple other authoritarian countries for the 2022. Yeah, to be
1: fair to the IOC, I think Kazakhstan was like the runner up (laughs) up bid. So, uh, you know, it's not like, yeah, it's a tough, yeah, yeah, that's fair.
0: That's tough menu, right? Tough menu. Look, if you were to say to me, (laughs) if you were to say to me, I think this will work. I think if we boycott the Olympics and lead lead an effort of the world to boycott the Olympics, then the genocide against the Uyghurs would stop. It would be a no brainer. Yeah. If you told me there was a fifty one percent chance that it would stop uh, this atrocity from occurring, no brainer. I just I don't know. I don't think this is like I don't like judging the the current Chinese response to all criticism. The way they lash back, it doesn't seem like this would. Do it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong.
1: I think you're right. I do think, though, what needs to begin to happen is corporations, venture capital, people need to start feeling like there's going to be some pushback if you just have an open spigot of money flowing into China. I mean, look, you, know, all, you can heap all the criticism you want on the Chinese government for developing these kind of surveillance technologies. But you know what? Funded a bunch of that, if not more than half of it, like U.S., venture capital <laughs> you know like hmm. investing in chinese ai and things like that i mean so uh, i think it's it's it, it, you know th- you c- it can go to a tom cotton extreme that is uncomfortable but i think the idea that there should at least be scrutiny on what companies are doing and where money's flowing that's a healthy thing even if it's totally. e- even if that's not going to change everything it might it just makes it harder for uh for china to do this you know, they did this with impunity and to some extent for a while, and now there's more attention on. That's good.
0: Yeah, no, this this is a good conversation to have. Uh, obviously, like, we are no fans of what China's doing here. The, the juxtaposition with like the whataboutism about, uh, you know, anti-voter suppression laws in the US, that, that conversation I have no time for. Yeah. That said, you raised the 2022 FIFA uh, Soccer World Cup in Qatar, <laughs> I mean, that's a human rights disaster on its own, right? Yeah. Like 6,500 migrant workers have died in the process of setting that up. So, you know, there is a bigger, look, politics and sports, they intersect. We both listen to Take Line now, so we, we know that to be the case. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not gonna to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Let's talk about uh, one of our favorite people uh, on the planet, uh, BB Netanyahu. So, In the last couple of episodes, we've talked about the recent Israeli elections and what it means for the Prime Prime Minister Netanyahu's political future. The short answer is that uh, it's still unresolved. But we do have an update on Netanyahu's corruption trial. Uh, This is from case 4000. There are so many that they had to number them. Uh, It involves allegations that Netanyahu used his authorities to do special favors for the controlling shareholder of Israel's biggest telecom company, and in return, BB got favorable coverage uh, from the news outlet owned by that company. It's called Walla. So on Monday, the former CEO of Walla testified that his boss, the website's owner, ordered him to, quote, make negative articles about the prime minister and his wife disappear and to post articles that go after Netanyahu's rivals. In return, the company got regulatory relief. Uh, Ben, that sounds pretty bad, man. Like, are the walls closing in on BB here? What do you think?
1: Well, I think the reason that it's so important to highlight this is, you know, you, we've talked vaguely about corruption charges and, you know, it, it, that can sound like it's, you know, um, anything, right? And, and some of it is like kind of gross stuff that doesn't feel fundamental to democracy, like gifts of cigars, literally, um, mm-hmm. or, or even skimming off the top of some contract. Not that that's okay. But the reason that this is so important to highlight is, no, the corruption charges against Netanyahu fundamentally go to his authoritarian nature. Like this isn't just corruption. This isn't just like skimming off the top or getting a take. This is like using your power in a fundamentally undemocratic way to control Israeli politics and media. Right. And Netanyahu has been doing this for years. And oh, by the way, like the pro Netanyahu media, um, you Know it was not subtle, I mean, it was like, no. like turbocharged. And Sheldon Adelson, um, uh, you know, was a huge you know, uh, investor in, 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 in that, but but that that's one thing, just to kind of in the same way that there's pro Republican Party media that you know Rupert Murdoch pursues in the US that's gross but not necessarily corrupt. But this is literally using the powers of the state, like your regulatory authority. And, and I think that it was indicated by the witness, like at a value of like hundreds of millions of dollars, right, you know, to, to in terms of these licenses and potential penalties versus rewards um, to 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 tilt the balance in your favor. So I, I think it's worth just looking squarely at this and realizing this is about corruption. It's also about anti-democratic, fundamentally illiberal governance by Netanyahu, where he's been in power so long that he's basically co-opted elements of the state to serve his political project. And that's not that's not a democracy you know um, that that's something else and and that's mm-hmm. that's what Israelis need to deal with
0: yeah they got to get rid of him so he can uh, just deal with these charges I mean it's time to move past this guy it's just time. clearly <laughs> yeah. so it's so clear why he and Trump got along so well too right I mean he, Trump totally. was trying to emulate everything BB's been doing for decades um let's go uh, sort of in the same neighborhood and talk about the UAE because uh, according to a report in The Daily Mail 40 women were arrested in the United Arab Emirates this past weekend for allegedly participating in a nude photo shoot on a balcony in Dubai. Uh, This shoot is believed to have been organized by a Russian man for an adult website. These women are in their their, late teens, early 20s. They're mostly from Ukraine or other ex-Soviet states. But what's really scary here for these women, who clearly just thought they were like signing up for a a modeling shoot or a photo shoot in this modern, like frequently Instagrammed city, these women could face fines Serious fines or up to six months in jail. So, you know, like again, visually, Dubai is this like extremely modern city, but the UAE has strict and draconian public decency laws that they're being charged with. So, Ben, I just thought this was an awful story because it seems extremely likely you know, that these women maybe were brought to Dubai and didn't know what the shoot was going to be until it yeah. happened, or they just had no, you know, idea how risky the shoot would be, right? I mean, it's like a pretty public place, a balcony of a building. People are going to see it. Uh, in New York, you could imagine that that kind of thing happening, but in Dubai, you know, it is, it, it, it can get you in serious trouble, and I really worry for them. Like, who is going to stand up for them, fight for them? I don't know if they'll have sort of diplomatic access. I mean, it seems like a huge problem.
1: Yeah, and I... I- Talk about the ultimate, like, punish the victims here, you know? Um, Yes. Because these are, like, young women from Ukraine, largely, I think. And, uh, you know, yeah, like, who knows under what auspices they were brought to Dubai, right? Promised money, promised cash. Who knows that they controlled their travel and freedom of movement and passports and the rest of it? Um, Who knows that they knew that they were, you know, going to be used in in pornographic images or, or what have you? Um, I think the couple of things that I'd flag are like, you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, you know, in uh, other places, by the way, I mean, Seychelles, I don't, you know, like there's this kind of luxury world out there that mm-hmm. you and I are not a part of, Tommy, but like, no. you know, yachts and, and, you know, 20 naked women on a balcony, like they, they kind of cultivate a bit of that.
0: It's an ostentatious you know, there's wealth. There's an ostentatious right? like wealth that, of, like, yeah.
1: Formula One races and yachts. Yes. And and on, so on the one hand, you're kind of cultivating this image of this place where rich people come to party or whatever. And then you end up punishing the, the women who yeah. were, like, I don't know, potentially trafficked there, you know? And then that leads to the second point, which is that, like, it's interesting how QAnon is, hmm. is so insane – Right. And alleging that the whole world is run by a cabal of child sex traffickers and the like. I've been a bit worried that in the necessary pushback against that conspiracy theory, we not lose sight of the fact that there is a major human trafficking problem in the world. Right. Um, And and often intersecting with the sex industry and often involving wealthy people. Right. And, And and so. This is – and I know even you've been like the QAnon correspondent. Um, It's just going to be very important that as we rightly point out the absurdity of the conspiracy theories about these things, we don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, there's gross stuff happening in lots of places. Um, And this story is like – this story is one of the stories you read and by the way, you feel, uh, you know, I read like the Daily Mail story and I felt even bad just like seeing pictures of these women, like, you know, how many people in the world are looking at pictures of these these women? Um, you read and you're thinking like, I'm seeing the tip of some iceberg here of like a, a trafficking yeah. operation or a sex porn industry operation. Um, so I'm curious how, yeah, and you, you'll you have, you know, like how do you separate out the the vigilance against trafficking, uh, particularly young women as against the absurdity of the conspiracy theory that's that's going to be hard work you know
0: that was my exact take cuz cuz you could see like the new york post and all these places did like articles that were like designed to just gawk at the photos yeah, right Kirk-based, and you could just feel yeah. there this like subterranean element that goes deep into these inequality questions and wealth and class uh and misogyny and then you're right. Like the QAnon people, when they got banned from all these social media platforms, they started co-opting other hashtags like Save the Children and started yeah. hosting Save the Children events because they figured you can't ban that, right? But like you're right. It's absolutely distracting away from like the the core problem. Um, have you watched the HBO documentary about Q that's, that's out now?
1: No, I've been a bit – uh, like I have to, like, it's one of the things I want to watch, but like, I don't want to watch. You
0: know? <laughs> I felt the same way. I mean, look, if I like, there's six episodes, so it's pretty long. There were times on like the second and third episode, right. Where, where I felt like I had been brought down into a rabbit hole and was learning a ton about people that I just, my life would be better not really not knowing, knowing about. It, yeah. But then at the end, I thought it, it, it delivered not net, like not hundred percent an answer for who, Q is, but a pretty damn good theory of the case. And it tied it all together with the insurrection and the broader like sickness of our media ecosystem and that in the MAGA world that I thought was actually a very important story.
1: Yeah. No, I've had every time I've like dove into the QAnon stuff, I've been reticent and then always found it very worthwhile. Um, like there was a great Atlantic cover story. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to reckon with this as Americans that like QAnon comes up and you're like, this is batshit fucking crazy. Like our, our country's mm-hmm. lost its mind. And th- then you're reminded that throughout American history, there are frequently batshit crazy conspiracy theories that that gain massive followings that last for years. And not just like JFK assassination stuff, but I mean, belief systems, right? That are mm-hmm. rooted in conspiracy theory that QAnon's just like the latest flavor of something that's been around. So I think it is important for Americans to kind of kind of wrestle with why we are so susceptible to these kinds of things, you know?
0: Totally. Yeah. We, we are a country that loves conspiracy theories and it's been supercharged by like social media platforms yeah. and yeah. YouTube and everything. Okay. We're going to end with some some quicker headlines about some important things that we wanted to make sure you guys knew about. So we've talked a bunch on the show about uh, Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader and anti-corruption activist uh, that Vladimir Putin tried to poison multiple times. So Navalny is currently serving a two and a half year sentence in a Russian penal colony he has been talking about his experience. He has horrible back pain. He has numbness in his legs. He has a high fever and cough. Uh, and he says that tuberculosis is spreading through the prison, so the health situation sounds really dire. Obviously, COVID is a big concern, too. Uh, Navalny is now at least a week into a hunger strike to protest the the conditions in the prison. So, you know, a worrisome situation, Ben, about uh, a case that had kind of fallen from the news. I think we should try to just talk about it.
1: Yeah, and, and I you know, does anybody doubt that Vladimir Putin, you know, having failed to kill Navalny with poison might just kill him through like the steady mistreatment of like a grotesque penal colony in which illness is allowed to run rampant. He's denied care and maybe he's like poisoned again. I mean, people should keep their eyes on this. And again, we talked about the amnesty decision to not make him a prisoner of conscience. I've seen some other commentary like, you know, pointing out like problematic statements in Navalny's past, but like, This is this human being is being like tortured to death, you know, um, for his beliefs. And his beliefs are that the state should not be fundamentally corrupt and should be democratic, like the eyes of the world should stay on this case, um, because I can guarantee you that if if they drift, um, you know, Putin has no compunction about uh, about killing him, you know, uh, whatever means he can.
0: Yeah, including neglect. I mean, yeah, friend of the pod, uh, Julia Yaffe, a great journalist, flagged for me the other day that two of the uh, doctors who had treated Navalny back in August when he was uh, poisoned have died, and another yeah, this has quit is, his job. This is so. scary
1: shit. I mean, and this is, again, scary like where, where I get, I mean, just to, to grind another axe here, like the, the 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 kind of, there's a left strain, right? That all the criticism of Putin is overblown and Russia Gate, and th- this guy's a terrible Person, you know, like I I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I just don't get in in, in this zeal to like dunk on, I don't know what, like the Mueller investigation or something. We become apologists for Putin or we diminish, you know, what what he's doing or or, you know, or the what aboutism about American prisons. Look, whatever your points of view, this is wrong and it shouldn't happen, and people should call it out. Full stop. Yeah,
0: we should be able to hold two ideas in your head at once. Exactly, It's not that hard. Uh, The other uh, thing I want to point to, or two more, uh, the BBC published evidence uh, of a massacre by the Ethiopian military in the country's northern Tigray province. We've talked about this a few times uh, since late last year. I think it was around November, October. There has been intense fighting between the Ethiopian government and members of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, which is a resistance movement in this northern province. The conflict has just very quickly created a humanitarian disaster. Millions of Ethiopians have been displaced. Thousands have been killed. So what the BBC did was they obtained video of uh, Ethiopian troops uh, murdering prisoners and then shoving their bodies off of a cliff, uh, literally. And so unfortunately, this evidence is probably just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the horrors of this war. Ben, are you seeing signs that there is enough of an international response to, to like do anything to end the fighting, to seek some accountability? I don't know. I think I've asked you this exact question before because I'm just wondering when we'll hear more about this.
1: You do you sense this kind of like growing alarm from the EU and from from the US? Mm-hmm. And but I, I I I still think that you could see more in the sense that like this has a potential to, as we've talked about, spill over and refugees going into Sudan and conflicts kind of migrating to Somalia and instability in that whole region where Ethiopia was kind of an anchor, Sudan, South Sudan, Somalia, um, you know, places where conflict can really run out of control fast. Um, So there's the need to kind of get this under control, the need to get humanitarian access um, and, and Samantha Power's, you know, already been beating this drum even before she's gotten into the job of like, we got to get humanitarian access into Tigray to just start trying to save lives. And in part because mm-hmm. humanitarian access is a check on fighting. Um, if you get aid workers in there and the international community has a presence. Um, uh, and, but, yeah, I'd like to see like just more sustained high level attention. We should talk at a, on a future pod. The U.N. Security Council just feels totally absent from everything that's happening in the world, whether it's Myanmar yeah. or Tigray. I, I get that China and Russia hold things up, and but we got to find other ways to make the UN system work. Because back in the day, you would have had like a bunch of emergency meetings and passed some resolutions and put some pressure. That doesn't feel like it's happening. And if it's not going to happen there, like then you're going to have to do it on your own. So I think this has been building. I think the Biden team is, has tried to prioritize this, but I do think you can't overstate the humanitarian and political and geopolitical necessity of, of focusing on this. And that, that video, you just can't look away from that. Well, you don't want to watch it, nor can you look away. It's, it's horrifying. Yeah. It's
0: horrifying. Yeah. I mean, the, the urgency is like literally intervention now to stop, you know, thousands more people from. We don't have, yeah. But,
1: you don't even position in like 10 years where you're wondering how did it come to be that like a million people got killed in a multi-country conflict. And this was like the starting point, like this, small thing and not small but this seemingly smaller conflict in Tigray like it it feels yeah. like we got to get our arms around this faster
0: yeah um you mentioned uh Myanmar so uh, update there is that Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the duly elected leader of Myanmar, she was deposed by a military coup back in February. She and several of her ministers were charged with breaking the country's official secrets law. This could carry a prison sentence of up to 14 years. Um, I also saw that the military has ordered internet service providers to shut down wireless broadband services. This comes on top of them shutting off the, the internet uh, to people's phones every night. So it's really scary stuff. Also comes in the wake of just you know ongoing escalating violence against peaceful protesters in the midst of this general strike by huge swaths of the population. Um, Ben, you know way more about Burma than I do, but I I saw this New York Times piece and then um, it was an episode of The Daily over, I think on Monday, that talked about just how separate the military is from the rest of society. Like soldiers don't marry. into, Yeah, like soldiers marry other soldiers' families. Seems like they barely communicate with civilians. I, I guess I just didn't realize that it almost had a sectarian dynamic that can feel, you know, zero sum for the people involved.
1: Yeah, no, and this, I mean, like it's it's such a strange dynamic because the military, it, it's almost, yeah, it's like a separate organism ruling the people. Um, and Aung San Suu Kyi was always the emblem of the actual people. And, and, and part of her overwhelming support you know, part of it was she's the daughter of the founding father of Myanmar, the, the man who led them to independence after World War II. Part of it is that she has incredible charisma uh, uh, herself. But part of it is just that she was the only person, emblem, to, to put your hopes and, and aspirations into. You know, like she became the, the, the only alternative, really. Uh, and And when she was under house arrest, she was kind of experiencing the same thing the whole country was experiencing right everybody felt persecuted and traumatized by this military um and you know that's why again I just think that the military they, they, they have n- there's no way in which they can co-opt public opinion there's this kind of all or not either they literally put the entire country essentially in prison or they're going to be finished and and that's the kind of the extent of the zero-sum dynamic I do think it's also just worth noting that like you know, she got a lot of criticism for not speaking out, obviously about the and cleansing the Rohingya. Mm-hmm. You know, deserved criticism. Um, uh, and you know, we've talked about that. I wrote a long piece with Atlantic about this. I will say that her, her, she would always say, "If I push too hard, there's going to be another coup." And a lot of people dismiss that as alarmist. You know, um, this in no way, shape, or form justifies her for silence on the Rohingya. No, of course. Of it, course. It, it, it's just to say that, like she she wasn't wrong about the her criticisms of the military i guess is the point and and you know people should remember that i think the military is playing a dangerous game if they if anything happens to her um i, I you know it, there's already been a movement i mean the place will just blow you know um and, and so you know this this bears watching too cuz she's old and, and you know not in the strongest health to begin with so I just think Myanmar is not going to go away. This is going to, this is not an issue because the people are not going to accept the military. So there's, whether it becomes a failed state, whether it turns into some kind of civil war, whether there's kind of flare ups of horrific massacres, like, unfortunately, tragically, until this is sorted out, I think this is going to be on on our radar screen.
0: Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. Uh, Finally, to conclude, uh, Michael had, our our fantastic producer, Michael Martinez, had recommended we talk about a story about how there is an epidemic of dog napping in the United Kingdom. Apparently, uh, dogs are hard to come by. You can't buy them. You can't adopt them because of the pandemic. Everyone dogged up, as we should. Uh, And now criminals are stealing people's dogs. and and ex- try to sell them or extorting money from them. And I'll be honest, Ben, I couldn't really get through the article because, uh, mm. I, you know, if someone came up to me and said, give me your phone, give me your wallet, give me your keys to your car, I'd be like, take it all. Uh, if someone came up to me and tried to take my dog, I think I would fight them to the death. And it would probably be my death, if we're being honest.
1: Just like, like, come on, guys. Uh, like, what the fuck? The, we've like, Just think about what we've talked about. Like, can we just, can we not dognap on top of that? You know, I mean- can we steal anything else? Yeah. Maybe not children. Yeah. Maybe not dogs. Yeah, no, you know. How no, about no living things? How about that? No living that. things. No living things. Yeah. So long.
0: That's a good rule of thumb, even for the worst people on the planet. Just, you know, steal anything else. Hey, I got a good uh, TV recommendation for you because oh, we haven't good. done this in a while.
1: Yeah.
0: There's a show on Netflix called Last Chance You. They usually follow a junior college yeah. football team. Um, the first two seasons were about football teams in various places, there were good seasons the problem is the coaches were just the some of the shittiest people like you've ever been around <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. latest season is about basketball and it's uh, at at a uh, uh, college a uh, community college in eastern LA and it's this group of players and this coach who was just like seems like one of the better humans, three coaches, who seem like some of the better humans you'll ever meet. And it follows the this team through this season where they're trying to compete for this sort of national junior college championship. And all these kids are like players that could have gotten D1 or didn't have the grades or gotten some trouble or, you know what I mean, or like needed that extra year. And it's just the uh, most heartbreaking but also inspiring season of TV I've seen it in a long time, so highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm I I don't know if I've done this on the pod uh but The Bureau like I'm just totally obsessed with The Bureau. I know that's oh. like a trendy thing now but like if you want it's a French show but trust me like you'll get past the subtitles quickly. This is like the best espionage show I've seen in years. Um and then I mean one plug cuz I just got an email today from friend of the pod um Patrick Radenkeef. Um his book coming out about the Sackler family. I have not I read it yet. I can't wait to read that. I can't wait to, to read that because I'm sure in the same way that everything that guy writes is about what he's writing about, but it's also about everything else. like The story of how this family got us all addicted to opioids um, and profited off of it and then used philanthropy and political donations to insulate itself Like, is clearly a story about what's happened in America the last 20 years. So keep your eyes peeled for the The release of that book next I think it's next week.
0: So I have zero sympathy for the Sackler family. I hope they lose all their money and and go to prison where appropriate. That said, could you imagine getting a call from Patrick Radden Keith saying, Hey, I'm working on a big article about you or your family business. That's got to be the scariest fucking phone call that you're ever gonna get. Cause that guy is gonna get to the bottom of what you're doing. You you have no hope of hiding it.
1: Yeah, it's like one of those eighties TV shows. It has like an Avenger, like, you know, the equalizer or something. <laughs> yeah. Like like when that the phone rings, like the gig is up, guys. You're fucked. It's yeah, like, you know, him you're or Jane f- him or Jane Mayer, like they're gonna smoke you oh. up, you know.
0: Yeah, no, you you have no you have no chance. But I'll tell you, uh, Tommy, surprise,
1: as a New Yorker, like what's gross is you go to the the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right, which is like the big museum there. The fountains outside are named after the Koch brothers. All mm-hmm. the wings inside are like the Sackler wings. It's just kind of yeah. like awful that that they they basically try to buy off like social standing for their grossness, which I guess is a is an American tradition. <laughs> I guess the, the yeah. robber barons used to do that. Um, but hopefully, uh, we can like put some better names on those uh, those things.
0: Uh, I totally agree with you there. Um, okay, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have my interview with Washington Post reporter Joby Warwick about his new book called "The Red Line," which talks all about uh, the effort to get Syria's chemical weapons the hell out of that country. So stick around for that. I am very excited to welcome Joby Warwick to the show today. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, reporter at the Washington Post, and the author of the new book, Red Line, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. Joby, great to talk to you again.
2: Awesome to be here, man.
0: Um, It has been a while. Uh, So I've been reading the book it's fantastic. I, I like feel like I was versed in a lot of these discussions and debates at the White House and you know, obviously followed this stuff closely. I didn't know any of these stories about how the individuals or how these chemical weapons were actually disposed of. It's like the most complicated problem I could ever imagine. But let me start at something broad, which is that I am I'm sure that almost every listener of this show like knows about Obama's Syria red line and they have heard the you know in many cases valid criticisms of his decision not to respond militarily to Assad's use of, of chemical weapons on his own people. I bet very few people listening know that in the wake of that debate about a U.S. military strike, the U.S., the Russians, the Syrians cut a deal to remove 1,300 tons of chemical weapons from Syria in the middle of a raging civil war. Why did you decide to tell this story? And why do you think that it kind of got buried?
2: Mm, yeah, this is, this is great. And, and actually, it's been a subject of frustration for me since, you know, way back when you were in, in the White House, because in 2011, 2012, I was covering Arab Spring. And there there were two red lines. There's the political one. There's the, the president's offhand comment, which was not a scripted moment, but it's something he happened to say at a press conference that got... Gets hung around his neck, but there's the other red line is the fact that of all the countries involved in Arab Spring, Syria is this place that has a real weapon of mass destruction, not a sort of false intelligence, but a serious WMD threat in the form of 1,300 tons of really bad stuff sarin vx sort the, of the really bad nerve agents and it's in the middle of a country that's being torn apart by a civil war and you can see in 2011 2012 the countries in the region starting to freak out about the possibility that some of those weapons would get stolen and go into the hands of some really bad guys like isis which moves in next door so that kind of becomes the origin of this other crisis of let's not just try to solve the syrian conflict which turns out to be an impossible thing but let's figure out a way to get rid of this stuff before it hurts us all
0: yeah, I mean, when you talk about like things that are debated in the in the White House Situation Room, when you ask a president who has to deal with every problem in the world to sort of rank and tier priorities, weapons of mass destruction are, are at the absolute top of the list. And I think even the term WMB is, is, is colored by the George W. Bush experience. But can you help folks just understand what weapons were in Assad's uh, chemical weapons arsenal and, and why they're sort of viewed so differently?
2: Yeah. We know a lot about this problem because it turns out in the very start of the book is, is a story about a spy that we, the CIA had inside Syria's chemical weapons program. Chemical weapons are bad anyway because they're 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 easy of compared to all the other WMDs. You don't need armies of physicists to build a chemical weapon. It, it the, the science is well understood. And once you have them, once you have a few gallons of sarin, it's portable. You can take it outside the country, you can use it somewhere else. So it becomes you know, a much more sort of practical tool for a terrorist organization. And so you know, we, you know, the, you, Obama was, you know, very mindful of the of the intelligence debacle that, that preceded the Iraq War, but he also was very concerned about weapons of mass destruction. He made this one of the central themes, one of the things he wanted to address to make a, a nuclear free world to eliminate this threat. Mm-hmm. So he was very, um, you know, very mindful of the fact that this threat existed in Syria. And of all the objectives the Americans had in, in addressing the Syrian conflict, this was a key one, not just solving the conflict, but getting rid of a threat. And that animated him, that motivated him to try to find a way to not just, you know, force the red line, but to get Syria to give up the stockpile that was so dangerous.
0: Yeah, so you you quote a a senior member of the Dutch Navy in the book describing just a portion of Assad's arsenal in terms that I I hope to never hear again, which was uh, inside those containers is the death dose equivalent for 21 million people. I think that that was describing one-tenth of the arsenal that was
2: eventually recovered. Mm. It was just a small amount that was being loaded onto a a Danish ship to, to take it out to sea to begin this destruction process, which the book describes in some detail. But yeah, you can't... The lethality of these these substances, they're some of the most deadly chemicals that were ever made. Uh, Sarin itself actually came out of a a Nazi experiment program back in the 1930s. They were actually Mm -hmm. looking for new kinds of insecticides, and they stumbled upon this thing that, oh, yeah, it's really good at killing people too. Think of sarin as being compared to cyanide, something we kind of know a little bit about. It's 26 times more deadly than cyanide. So just a whiff of this stuff is, is lethal. Uh, it's cousin VX, which is another thing the Syrians, this, the Syrians had. You don't even need to breathe it. Just a little bit on your skin is enough to, to kill you. And so these things were so terrifying and so horrific to contemplate that you can understand why neighbors like, like Israel are starting to hand out gas masks and starting to give their citizens uh, chemical protection suits because they're worried that these chemicals are going to start coming their way.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so there's a lot of echoes in Iraq uh, in the book. You know, you talk about how when Obama was first deliberating whether or not to strike, there was a UN team in Syria looking for evidence of chemical weapons use. Uh, several folks on Obama's national security team are, are quoted in the book saying that if that UN team hadn't been there and been at risk, that Obama probably would have struck almost right away. Can you explain what that UN mission was doing and how that impacted the the, uh, deliberations over whether or not to strike during those intense times?
2: It's really fascinating because you have the situation in Syria where small amounts of chemical weapons are showing up on the battlefield. The Assad government is starting to use them in little pinprick attacks almost as a test of theory. Can they can they use these weapons to break the back of the opposition? They're running out of troops. They're running out of ammunition. We've got these chemical weapons that are covered. Let's start to use them. So that stuff is going on, and the United Nations decides to send a team of inspectors into Syria to look on the ground to try to figure out if this is really chemical weapons or is it something else? Who's using them? And this team is present in Damascus in August of 2013 when suddenly this horrific uh, chemical weapons attack takes place in the suburbs, so close that the, these inspectors can see it from their hotel rooms a few miles away. And so you have this moment where where Obama is horrified. You know, he's, he's had this red line statement, but more than that, just as a human being witnessing the death of all these women and children from Sarin, um, it, it's just it's horrific, and so he's motivated to try to do something about it. His entire, uh, you know, national security establishment is saying we're ready for a military strike. We think this is appropriate in this case, but there are things that stand in the way, and one of them is at the presence of these very UN inspectors who happen to be there right in the middle of this attack. And there's a worry that first of all they could be used as human shields. They might be, uh, you know, uh, used as hostages. Or just the fact that you know you have fact fighters on the ground. How does a U.S. president send missiles into the country when the U.N. is still gathering evidence and trying to make the case? So all this forces Obama to slow down a little bit, and then other things happen. The British were going to join us in the military strike. Their parliament takes a vote and says, "No thanks, we don't have any part of this." And so America is suddenly almost on its own. You could see that the president being you know anguished about what to do, and he decides. fateful decision to go to Congress and and try to get Congress to back him up. And of course, they don't.
0: Yeah. And look, I I was at the White House when Obama made that red line statement. I think I was like sitting right next to him in the briefing room. And I remember he made those comments because there was this intelligence that Assad might be about to use chemical weapons or maybe to disseminate it somewhere. And that warning, Obama's statement, did deter the Syrians for a little bit, but not forever. Um, I was not there for the later debates uh, about a military strike, but I've read your book and I watched at the time how Republican members of Congress refused to give Obama authorization. Democrats too, but then those same Republicans lavished praise on Trump when he launched a military strike later against Syria without authorization. And there, there is a part of me over the years that has thought, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that you know, look, Obama should have just sort of done what Trump did, basically, right? You launch a bunch of missiles as sort of a, a symbolic response to show that the red line uh, was an empty talk. But then I was reading your book, and you write about how Assad had loaded uh, a bunch of military airplane hangars full of political prisoners in the hopes that the United States would kill them for him, basically. And it just made me realize all over again how unbelievably difficult and complicated all these sets of options are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's what occurred to me, too, as I was reporting this book. And I hope that's what I can convey uh, to people that read it, because it was an extremely difficult decision. It's not, you know, what are your options when you're when you're weighing a possible military strike? You want to punish Assad. You're not looking to decapitate. Nobody was talking about regime change. So you're talking about, you know, essentially, you know, making him feel some pain for, for what he's done. But, the, you know, the big question of what happens with these chemical weapons remains because you can't strike chemical weapons themselves. If you try to do that, you're just gonna spread them. You're gonna create a deadly plume that's gonna kill the very people that you're trying to save. And so the only option really is to do what Trump did years later, which is to to wrap Assad's knuckles, to to knock out a few airfields and, and destroy a few of his airplanes. And when Trump did that, he got a lot of praise for it. The airplanes were flying the same day. The airports were repaired. It didn't really do any lasting damage. It didn't change his behavior. But what Obama managed to do was to, to, to come up with this deal that, that allowed uh, weapons inspectors to actually remove chemical weapons, to remove the source of the problem. And that that was painful for, for Assad. This was his most important weapon system. But it was also just, you know, it made made Syrians safer, it made Americans safer to get rid of them.
0: Yeah, it made the world safer. I mean, w- one just terrifying detail in the book that I, I didn't really know was just how close Islamist fighters came to actually getting their hands on chemical weapons in Syria. I mean, you write about how there was a a Syrian military base that was overrun by, I don't know, assume al-Nusra fighters, you know, sort of al-Qaeda-linked fighters just after the CW had been cleared out. Uh, Another base was surrounded with its stockpile still there. I mean, can you just sort of help people understand how close, you know, like serious terrorist groups may or may not have gotten to getting their hands on these these weapons?
2: This was the nightmare scenario that people had been imagining in the beginning. And the, the Islamists, the, the Al-Qaeda's and the ISIS folks were slow to get into the game because they didn't really start to become a major presence until late 2012 in the case of ISIS in 2013. But once they're in place and once they're seizing territory and knocking over military bases, it occurs to them, hey, we've got weapons of mass destruction out there Osama bin Laden said it's our religious duty to seize these weapons and to use them. And so what a tempting target. And that's why getting rid of the weapons becomes so urgent because there were these close calls. There were these moments when a base gets overrun right after the weapons have been removed. You know, As you said, you know, there's, there's this, this base in eastern Syria with, that gets surrounded by a, an army of rebels. And inside is enough sarin to fill a, a swimming pool. And you can just imagine what would have happened if if trucks of 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 sarin would have been hauled across the Turkish border into Europe, you know, showed up in a you know used in a soccer game or in a in a in a subway station, it would have been not just a horrific calamity, but it would have forced the United States to get involved in a war. It would have been uh, irresistible. We would have had to have responded militarily in Syria and and perhaps involved in in, in another Iraq type situation. It's it's certainly what the American officials were. Uh, anticipating at the time.
0: yeah, the echoes of Iraq are just everywhere. Um so right I mean th- there was the challenge of constructing this diplomatic deal with the Syrians, the Russians, the u s to 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 get uh, access to this chemical weapons and get it out of the country. Then there was the whole separate problem of what do you do then? like what do you do with thirteen hundred tons of 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 the most deadly substances on the planet? Can you explain how? like these specially constructed machines ended up destroying these chemicals and and how it all ended up happening at sea, because it, it's a really fascinating part of the book, the, the, the people in the bowels of the Pentagon who were sort of handed this massive problem.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. What do you do with 1,300 tons of chemical weapons? There is no place to take them. (laughs) You can't, like the Americans weren't going to take them. The Russians didn't want them. Uh, We had this this moment in the book where where Pentagon officials are literally traveling around the world, going to all these countries, hat in hand, saying, could you take this problem off our hands? We'll give you the equipment. We'll help you build a facility. You know, Albania will give you some money. You know, please do this for us. And there was, but there's nobody that wanted to Take them. Nobody wanted to get, you know, you know, tons of chemical weapons coming into a, a major harbor. So the only solution left was to take this machine that the, the Pentagon had had built as a contingency. I call it the margarita machine because it's this big tinker toy looking thing that, that uses high-pressure water and, and chemicals to, to neutralize Sarin. And they built the machines and then with nowhere, nowhere else to put them they decided to put them in a boat and destroy the weapons at sea and this is a terrible idea everybody knew this was a <laughs> really really dumb idea because you know all kinds of things can happen in the water you know you, you get pipes and and pumps can be flexed by the movement of the ship if you know if the ship gets contaminated it can never go to port and you know what if the boat capsizes which actually comes close to happening and and so but it's the only solution that remained and so you have these these brave guys, you know, from the bowels of the Pentagon, from obscure agencies that nobody had ever heard of, you know, getting on the deck of this boat with these machines with thousands of gallons of sarin sloshing around and then destroying them one at a time, one barrel at a time, while getting chased by flotillas of activists who are searching for them or while dealing with breakdowns and 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 technical problems in the middle of the, you know, baking, you know, July, it's it's hot as hell, and they managed to get it done without mishap, without killing anybody. And it's this remarkable story. It's it's actually one of the most amazing feats of disarmament that have ever happened because all this takes place while a war is going on. And and the people of the United States and the world didn't even know what was happening.
0: Yeah. I mean, truly, truly heroic work. Obviously, like sort of the eventual outcome is colored by the fact that, you know, I think the us got out all uh, of uh, assad's declared stockpile and it seems like he clearly had some undeclared stockpile that he hung on to and then he started using other you know non designated chemical weapons like chlorine gas to you know kill the civilian population so you know the horrors he was inflicting on on his people continued but you know it does seem like Thanks to the work of this this incredible team, like we dodged a massive bullet when it comes to access and availability to like sarin gas, VX gas, all these chemical agents.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and there's not just the weapons are destroyed, but production equipment. Because inspectors on the ground go in, sometimes the sledgehammers, sometimes the bulldozers, and literally crush the the machines that were used by the Syrians to build the stuff to, to begin with. But yeah, it is ultimately it's it's a mixed success because you know, despite this victory, which is important you know, Assad doesn't really learn his lesson. He continues to use chemical weapons, but he just switches to like a poor man's substitute, which is chlorine, which is not forbidden. You're allowed to have chlorine. You use it to clean drinking water, You use it in swimming pools. And so he just dumps that on, on villages instead. And, and in addition to that, it becomes clear later on that, that Assad didn't give up everything. He keeps some of it aside, um, but his ability to make more of it is compromised, and so you see him using these dwindling stocks in later attacks. But there's no evidence he was ever able to make more.
0: Man, uh, again, the book is "Red Line: The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World." Uh, w- one last question for you: um, Some people, you know, especially on on the left, have questioned and criticized the OPCW for a report it issued that said that Assad used chemical weapons like sarin again in 2017 and 2018. Um, these folks believe that this was a staged event uh, by the Syrian opposition, presumably designed, you know, to get the West to retaliate militarily. I-, I have no way to, you know, independently vet those allegations. I completely respect and appreciate the, the need and desire to vet And you know, scrutinize allegations like this that could lead to a war. But what do you make of those allegations, and and what do we know about these later instances uh, of alleged chemical weapons abuse by Assad?
2: It's mystifying, and I do feel there's there's quite a bit of uh, there's like a counter narrative that's been developed that's that's really contrary to the facts as we know it, and it serves the interest of of Russians and Syrians and others who are who've been on the bad side of this all along. There's no question it's been well documented that the the Syrians use chemical weapons multiple times and you know the forensic evidence is there we know it's there but you see people pick at a couple of investigations and try to find fault with with some of the findings of the OPCW this this group in the Hague that that investigates chemical weapons attacks and and I know this organization I know the people that work at it they're they're essentially scientists and accountants who go in and look at the evidence and try to 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 draw conclusions based on evidence they have and they're this an international group. They're they're made up of people from around the world with high, you know, qualifications and degrees. Uh, and yet, there's this effort to to disparage them, to uh, to find a small flaw or or just a discrepancy that somehow disqualifies the whole endeavor, and to make Assad look innocent, which is seems absolutely crazy because there's overwhelming evidence that the guy is intentionally using these horrible weapons to kill his own people. And, and so why defend him? It just is, is just crazy to me, but there's a lot of people out there who argue that.
0: Yeah, it, it is really quite baffling. Uh, last question for real this time. So, you know, we're, we're a decade into, you know, the Syria conflict basically beginning just for, for folks who, you know, it's not in the headlines every day anymore. Can you sort of describe where things are in terms of like, you know, is the, is the opposition able to hold territory still? Does it seem like Assad is close to resuming control of the country?
2: For all intents and purposes, Assad is won. Uh, he's reclaimed control of the, of the major cities and most of the countryside. Uh, there's one enclave in the northwest, this city called Idlib, near the, the Syrian border, which is held by the opposition with Turkish support. And that continues to be kind of a frozen front, not much changes and then there are Americans in the Northeast and down to the Southwest, Southeast rather. That that we just have a small residual presence of a few hundred special forces guys, um, some intelligence folks, who just to make sure that that the, the the Iranians essentially aren't causing any problems. But but Assad has kind of won the day. but At the same time, what does he want? He's he's got a pariah state that's falling apart. The 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 economy is in free fall. Um, it's. Its military is a shambles. It's not able to to control the entire country. And nobody's from at least from the West, is going to come in and rebuild the place. So he really has a kind of an empty shell of a country. And that could lead to some hopeful developments because if things get desperate enough in Syria, maybe there's another window where a Biden team can, can figure out a way to to end the conflict or at least figure out a way to, to help refugees return to their homes Um, To give people some hope of rebuilding their society, because right now it's a pretty hopeless place and there's nothing worse in the world than a lawless, stateless, you know, province where really bad things can happen. And that's kind of what we have in parts of Syria right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it's a a humanitarian catastrophe. The the scope and scale of the suffering is just like, uh, you know, unspeakable. And it's also the case, right, that you know, if you have a completely porous border between Syria and Iraq, it's going to lead to continued instability there. So it does seem like a problem. There, there has to be some sort of broader diplomatic effort at some point, hopefully, that can try to, I don't know, bring some stability around. I don't know what it would be.
2: Yeah, by an administration that really has its hands full right now with, with Iran and COVID and domestic issues and so many other things. But, but people are talking and that there's, there's at least a ray of hope that something could change.
0: That's good. Uh, again, the book is Red Line, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. Uh, listen, I worked in the White House. I did not know these stories. They're just incredible uh, narratives about the people involved, the, the work they did, uh, the improbable success that they had because they're incredibly brave and smart uh, and ingenious. So thank you for doing the show. Thanks for writing the book and everyone should check it out.
2: It's a lot of fun, man. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Joby for joining the show. Uh, Ben, you know, the other TV recommendation that came to me was from our friend Nick Shapiro, who actually worked at the CIA, and Ben LeBolt. They recommended this German spy show that's set in like the 80s. It's like sort of a East German, West German military or spy unit um, that's on Amazon. The name is escaping me. It's in German, it's subtitled, but it's also pretty good, like espionage Story, if you're looking for that.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'll check that out. I mean, I have to say I also toured through Ted Lasso in about 2 days. So,
0: oh yeah. Um, that's a that yeah. that's just a Don't miss it a if you pleasant have pleasant experience.
1: Yeah, if you have any like re- reservations, put those reservations aside, you know, just 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 gorge. It's like it's like a nice little happy sugar high amidst the darkness.
0: Treat yourself. Treat
1: yeah. yourself. Treat yourself. Uh, there you go.
0: That's it for us this week. Uh watch Ted Lasso and that's your homework and we'll we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmul Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week.